spotlighting Hawaii's leaders. We want to bring in Governor David E. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Mayor Derek Kawakami. Thank you so much, uh, Senator, for being here. Spotlighting the issues. Where is the virus right now in our community? How much is this overall going to cost the state? How are you responding to the community's concerns? Talk about the level of citations that you guys are writing. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei Suji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs and Beachside Roofing. Well, happy Aloha Friday. Thanks so much for tuning in here on this Friday morning. I'm Ryan Kalei Suji, joined by Yanji Denise, and this is Spotlight Hawaii on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. Uh, this morning, we will be shining a spotlight on the race for lieutenant governor. That's right. A very interesting poll over last weekend talking about the candidates who are running and really talking about a large number of people who are still undecided. So to help introduce you to the candidates, we've invited all of them on. And today we are shining the spotlight on Sylvia Luke. She, of course, is a very familiar face in the world of Hawaii politics. Representative Luke, thank you so much for being here. Aloha, Yanji, and aloha, Ryan. Thank you for inviting me. So you've been, uh, you know, part of the state legislature for some time now. Why make this pivot? Why decide to run for this particular seat? You know, one of the things that I um, came to understand is the legislature passes a lot of laws. So even during COVID, we passed a law to to have bring access to all three and four year olds, the ability to have access to preschool and childcare. We're also working on broadband access. And as you know, we announced this year a $600 million commitment to deal with uh, Hawaiian homelands. One of the things is that while the legislature passes laws, it really is up to the, the administration and the executive branch to implement a lot of these laws. So over the years, we pass laws and then it, it idles or it, it drags. And so one of the things that prompted me to run is really bridging that gap between the legislature and the executive branch and bringing some of the insights and experience that I had in making sure that a lot of these laws that we have passed gets implemented. You know, there, this is a crowded field. Uh, five major candidates have uh, already announced that they will be seeking this office. You right now are the only uh, person that is actually holding an office uh, of those five candidates that you are currently serving uh, in the state house. Do you think that that is an advantage? Uh, you know, there are some that are looking for new blood and maybe looking for someone, uh, somewhat of an outsider, uh, but you being in there right now uh, and with a very large role uh, heading the finance committee, your thoughts on that experience and do you think that's an advantage for you moving forward? Yeah, so... What we have in state government, it's the state government is a $16 billion entity and $16 billion of taxpayer monies that come in and the state spends $16 billion. You cannot not know about state government and think that you can do a good job. So you really need to know what's going on in various departments, whether it's education, land management, agriculture, economic development. So as chair of the finance committee, I was able to learn in-depthly about what's going on in many of the departments and have relationship and understanding of what the different areas are. And I think because of that experience, it brings a very unique opportunity and unique experience and what's needed in state right now to bridge that relationship between the legislature and the executive branch. 
you know, building upon that, what do you see as the role of the lieutenant governor? It's an interesting office because it doesn't really have defined responsibilities. Uh, it is really up to the person who's in the job to make it. Um, how would you, as a lieutenant governor, how would you govern? Correct. You're so correct, Yunji. You know, the lieutenant governor is really an open book only because it's not defined. It's really depending on what type of things that the lieutenant governor wants to pick up. So even during COVID, even if I was a legislator, I helped the governor set up a 200 person UI uh, satellite office to process the claims that went from 2000 to 200,000. You know, it's impossible to just process claims based on the status quo number of people we had. So I helped the governor in that role. I also helped the governor to, to create and implement the restaurant card and also the restaurant card plus, which allow private businesses to help restaurants by giving their employees restaurant cards. So that's why I felt that my skill set was really not just in the legislative role, but it was actually to help the governor implement some of these immediate things that needed to get done and immediate things that needed attention. So I think because of that, I can bring that unique experience in helping to bridge between the legislature and the governor and helping to fill in to get some of these major projects done. You know, many people, of course, will recognize you for the time that you spent in the state house. I'm wondering if you can give us a, a quick synopsis of things that you do outside the legislature. We know that many uh, of those uh, lawmakers that we have at the Capitol do have other jobs or had another career before. If you can give us a short insight into your background and, and something else that uh, may people may not know about you. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. I don't know if people know, but uh, I was actually born in South Korea. I uh, came here when I was nine years old and I didn't learn, uh, I didn't know a single word of English. And there was a teacher in my fifth grade class who didn't send me to ESL class and sat me down every day to teach me English. And I think that was my first experience on how special Hawaii was. Unfortunately, seven years later, my father passed away and my mom was all of a sudden left with three young kids and she had no family, but she was a really strong Christian woman. And she, no matter how little we had and how um, we had difficulties, she always took time to spend time with a sick member of the church or bring food to a elderly member. So growing up, I think it instilled in us that no matter how difficult and challenging our lives were, there were always people who needed help and who needed our assistance. So growing up, that kind of instilled in me that we always need to look out for each other. And that made me one, that also led me to become a lawyer and that eventually led me to become a state representative. And I think even now going into becoming a lieutenant governor, I think some of the lessons that my mom instilled in me still remains where it is really to serve the public and how do you best help people who are in need and help those communities. I want to ask you about some of the issues that you would be facing if you were in this role. Of course, we are, you know, still in the pandemic, but starting to sort of transition to a, a new phase, uh, if you will. What are your thoughts on the restrictions that have been in place, things like mask mandates, vaccine requirements, uh, things like that? How strict do you think the state should be on those kinds of restrictions when it comes to managing the pandemic? 
So as you have seen, the Omicron numbers and the COVID numbers have started to come down. And I think that's a major, major sign that hopefully we'll get to new normal soon. I think at this point in time, we have to move on. And in as much as the restrictions and mandates have brought us to this point where we are in a place where we can move on, I think we need to start looking at how do we how do we lessen the type of restrictions? So as, as an example, at the state capitol, we're still close to the public, but I think there has to be a call to open the state capitol because we have to get back to normal. And even as much as Zoom meetings are good, we miss that human contact and we miss that human interaction. And a lot of times dialogues are not as productive and fruitful in this type of setting. We have to get back to normal. I wanted to get uh, your thoughts being the head of the finance committee about where we're at financially as a state. Uh, you know the budget intimately. Uh, you obviously are working now with uh, the budget that the governor has presented and you are working with your colleagues in the House as well as on the Senate to develop your own uh, strategic plan of what you think that budget should look like. Uh, I'm wondering if you can give us a just broad overview and general sense of where we're at uh, with the state budget and uh, any types of things moving forward that you see as part of those key initiatives that the legislature are looking to really um, solidify this, this session? You know, Ryan, it's really amazing that two years ago, we were looking at a basically a $3 billion deficit. And two years later, we are in a position where we're looking at a surplus situation to a point that the governor talked about a billion dollar going into the rainy day fund. So that gives you a little bit of an idea, the amount of revenues that have been generated just in the last year. It's partly because of the federal funding stimulus and some you, all the assistance that the federal government gave us two years ago, and we're seeing the remnants of that economic activity now. I think for us, we need to figure out what are some of the big important challenges that we need to take on now. So it, as you know, um, in the beginning of session, we announced that we will be setting aside $600 million to take care of Native Hawaiian uh, housing issues under DHHL. The other thing that we will be looking at is broadband access. One of the things that it became really evident during the pandemic is everybody needs expanded broadband, You know, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in school. We are about to receive a large amount of money from the federal government. We already received $200 million. And there's, an, there's always a chance that the state could blow it. And I wanna make sure that we use it right. And we make sure that you know, we provide broadband access and connectivity. In 2019, Kauai lost broadband access for a day. And can you imagine not having your phone? How many times you're checking Facebook or going and checking something uh, uh, in a day? So they lost power for a whole day and that should never happen again. The next administration also is going to have to work with the Navy when it comes to Red Hill uh, managing that crisis. Uh, you know, the Navy pursuing two lawsuits now to, if, if not end, perhaps stall the process of draining those tanks and following the state order. What's your position on Red Hill? Do you think that there is any 
way that there could be that these tanks could be operational. The governor has sort of allowed a little bit of wiggle room there, saying that if it's double walled and proven to be safe, that he could perhaps support keeping the tanks in place. The congressional delegation, on the other hand, going in the total opposite direction, line in the sand, Kai Kahele on this program saying there's no way that uh, there's any way that, you know, Red Hill should exist. Where do you stand on that? The regular fuel tanks should be defueled and decommissioned. If you look at what happened, it wasn't the the tanks that leaked. It was the pipes that came out of the tank close to the water system that that cracked and busted, which led to the leak. So even if you do the dual tank, it doesn't it doesn't prevent other leaks from happening throughout the pipe. So the entire system has to be decommissioned. Water is important and water is life and you cannot contaminate our drinking water. And the only thing that can be done is to decommission, defuel, move it somewhere else. I wanna also bring up something that has made headlines this week and, and that is the corruption that has uh, unveiled mm -hmm. itself at the state capitol involving, uh, of course, former Senator Kalani English and former House Representative Ty Cullen, someone who you've worked with in the state house as well as on the finance committee. Um, your thoughts about this, uh, you know, there is obviously some frustration by those in the public about the transparency as well as the overall corruption that seems to be plaguing some of the members uh, of this body. Your thoughts about uh, when you found out this, uh, these, uh, when these charges came through? You know, goodness, I was really shocked and I was disappointed. It's, these are people that we trusted and we work with and receiving cash for any type of action that that's, crazy and that's despicable and we are still shaken by that experience and you know people can say okay you you're gonna have bad apples anywhere but we have to do better and we have to figure out how you rebuild public trust because it wasn't just this you know hawaii has faced the kealoha situation you know dpp we're still learning about some of the um we also heard about the federal funds um, being misused as a state and as a small state, we have to do better. And I think, you know, this is kind of really still very disturbing for us and we have to figure it out, whether it's strengthening the bribery law, strengthening the ethics law, you know, even um, figuring out how you investigate and bring accountability and transparency. So this is not uh, something that we can just say, hey, you know, it happened and we can move on. We have to fix it. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity also to address something that was in the paper today. Milton Choi, the person identified as person A, uh, is a prolific donor and has mm -hmm. given to numerous candidates, yourself included. What's your relationship like with him? And, you know, there's just some questions in the comments about that, that relationship. Yeah. So I don't have a relationship with him. I never solicited donations from him. But you know, the thing is, he donated to a lot of people and it's not right for us to hold on to that money. So I will be having a conversation with campaign spending about forfeiting that money. And I encourage everybody else who received money from Milton Choi to forfeit that money as well. If everybody forfeits their money, then, you know, from what, what I understand, it's 
in the hundreds of thousand dollars in campaign spending should use that money to investigate other campaign violations? You know, it's hard to believe, but the election is about six months away uh, from that primary election. And uh, uh, that clock is ticking. I wanted to get your some of your final thoughts here as you head into the campaign, as uh, you kind of turn it into gear here. Uh, what do you think and what is the message that you're trying to get around right now, especially with so many undecided voters, according to that latest Star Advertiser poll? Uh, what's the strategy moving forward to try to get your story out there? One of the things that's been really great about campaigning is meeting a lot of people. So I visited with individuals throughout the state, including individuals on Lanai, and shared some of their stories. And I, as I tell them about my immigrant story and my challenges growing up, it resonates with a lot of these residents and they share their challenges and share their experiences as well. So, you know, just through learning about them and understanding their experiences helped me become a better person and helped me become more empathetic and sympathetic. And I think that's what we will need. You know, it's really about sharing those experiences and growing from that. We are almost out of time. We're going to shift gears and talk to Neil Milner in just a second. But I wanted to get give you an opportunity with your final message to those 60% plus of voters who are undecided in this race. What would you say to them this morning? Thank you, Yanji, and thank you, Ryan. And I want to just thank all the viewers for tuning in. This has been a great experience. I would like to get to know you. And if you have an opportunity, if you can... Yeah, you know, I would love to talk story with you. And as I said, you know, we uh, went throughout the islands and we talked to people on Kauai and some of their experiences. We talked to ranchers on uh, Waimea and just sharing each other's stories about growing up, some of the challenges. And I think together we can make the state better. All right, Sylvia Luke, thank you so much for joining us here this morning. We look forward to uh, speaking with you again as the campaign gets rolling through here in 2022. It's going to be a busy year, but we appreciate yeah. you uh, taking time this morning. Thank you. Thank Mahalo. You. Mahalo. And we're going to switch gears now and talk to political analyst Neil Milner, professor emeritus and political analyst extraordinaire. We love having you on, Neil. Uh, tell us about what you just heard. Well, some interesting things. I mean, first of all, she's clearly, Sylvia Luke is clearly a good example of some of the good things about growing up in Hawaii, the ability for an immigrant to succeed, uh, a strong family, going to the University of Hawaii as an undergraduate and to public schools, all those sorts of things which are not, it's not rags to riches because I'm not saying she's rich. So you get that kind of uh, um, good, good sense about that. I think that the most interesting thing that she talked about is what she really began with, and that's this idea of implementation because implementation is such an underappreciated issue. And at the same time, the, it raises the questions about what the Lieutenant Governor can actually do about it. So let me take a second to talk about this. The most important thing you can understand about the policy process, certainly in Hawaii and elsewhere, is how long does it take to actually get done what the, uh, what the uh, policy said? You could look at how long it took for uh, medical marijuana. And that's not simply about sloth or people slow. It's about the fact that the process of implementing is very hard. We tend to let it pass by because of all of this 
the sexiness of passing the law. So we know that there's going to be a, a lot of money given to Hawaiian homelands for, for housing for Hawaiians. We have no idea what the process is going to be like to actually make that happen. And there's nothing that would suggest that that's an easy process. So that's a good thing that you learn from her. It's an important thing and she has a hook there. But what you also have to remember is that because the lieutenant governorship is such an open position, it really doesn't have formal powers to do that. It doesn't have formal powers to do almost anything. So the real question is, what is it that a lieutenant governor can do to help this process along? That question ought to be very familiar. You're always asking what a lieutenant governor can do because it's not clear because there are chances they can do a lot. There are chances they can do a little. It's not there formally. So those to me are the two most important things that, that came out of it. One, a sense of what she is like. And two, this important issue that she raises, which she may not be able to deal with as lieutenant governor as well as she suggests. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting note, too. And something that shook me was, you know, the connection to uh, some of the things that she was able to do with the pandemic and, and working alongside the administration. Uh, when we look broadly at this race, of course, we've talked about it in the past. We have had some time since we last spoke. Uh, and of course, that latest poll that came out in the Star Advertiser uh, this past weekend. Uh, your thoughts on where she stands in, in positioning with those other five candidates uh, that are also vying for this position? Well, I mean, the first thing is to say something about the poll. The, the, from the standpoint of polling methods, it was fine. But it's simply one poll at an early stage when, you know, Ryan, you said the clock is ticking. In the minds of the public, there is no clock yet. There just simply isn't a clock for this office. So 60% undecided um, is obviously a large amount. And even the people who are decided, I think the decision is pretty soft. So the poll doesn't say anything definitive at all. And maybe that's the most important thing about the poll. You know, when I looked at it, I said, well, yeah. So uh, there's no reason, there's nothing you can say that explains what those differences are. The differences are very tentative. Uh, over time. I don't see how it really even helps a candidate. So I think that's where we are. you have to remember how early this is in the process for your average person who tends basically to think about politics at all. It tends to be increasingly national politics. It tends to be about a more highly visible office. And it tends to be things that you as a citizen are cued in about, like um, is he or she liberal or conservative? Is there something, is there some person that I respect politically who's endorsing one versus the other? That's all open questions basically now. And so that's why the situation is still fluid. Another situation that's fluid, of course, is the governor's race. Uh, we made mention that Josh Green formally announced yesterday. But of course, uh, Congressman Kaikahele has been sort of doing this little dance with the press and with the public about will he, won't he. What are your thoughts on that race right now? Well, I'm, I'm, it's a different race, uh, whether if, if Kaheli enters or not, for statistical reasons, it just splits the vote more, but also because he introduces, he becomes a different kind of candidate. What you really have right now without him are candidates who talk about being non-political, that is, they haven't held political office 
candidates who have held political office, one for which I think it is baggage, and that's Mayor Caldwell, ex-Mayor Caldwell, and the other for which it's a very important advantage, at least as the polls show, uh, and that's that's case. Kaheli uh, is, an, is a, a new figure in there. The other thing that you can't tell yet, uh, because we generally don't do uh, campaigns along these lines, it's not clear, I think, to the average person which of these candidates is going to try to present himself or herself as more liberal, as more moderate, as more conservative, which is very much the part of a lot of primaries for higher office, both among Democrats and among Republicans on the mainland. So what Kaheli adds is a pretty attractive candidate in the sense of what, he, what he's done so far, sort of a uh, uh, a different kind of candidate that makes that makes things more confusing. I think the interesting thing about Kaheli is not just whether he declares or not, but if he declares, who are the people that are going to be talking in 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 his behalf? Are there people who have been dissatisfied with Josh Green, who by every conventional measure right now has got a he, he's got a he's got a big lead. He's got a lot of money. He's got high approval ratings and obviously high name recognition. But what happens when candidates begin to try to distinguish themselves from one another and particularly from Green? And Kai Kaheli just adds another one. You know, maybe an hour from now, you and I can have another conversation where he's actually in. It's amazing <laughs> how buzz there is about a guy who's never, you know, <laughs> I can say a lot of things about myself and spread rumors that have nothing to do with what I'm actually going to do. So <laughs> this is true. Uh, but know. I want to I want to also ask this question. I mean, if he does decide to pull the trigger, so to speak, and run for governor, that then leaves an entire new race up for grabs, and that is oh, his. That, yes, for sure. I can't tell you how it becomes new because I don't have any sense of how popular he is with the voters for this office. I assume that they've done some private polling and that they have something, if he's even considering, they have some kind of good signs. But the thing about politicians and polling, and pollsters will tell you that because they've written about it, politicians are inherently optimistic. And one of the hardest things that pollsters have to do if they're polling for a politician is to tell them bad news. So my guess is that he's got some kind of poll that he sees as being possibly optimistic, and that might be enough to throw him in. But after that, at this stage, you're all guessing what it is that he brings to the table because no one has said what he brings to the table. I want to get your thoughts quickly on the corruption case that's unfolding at the state legislature. Uh, obviously, the public is pretty disgusted with what's gone on, and these two lawmakers are quick to plead guilty and sort of, you know, move on. For you know, there, it doesn't sound like there's going to be a prolonged trial. But what does this do for the public sort of view, not only of these two now former lawmakers, but just politicians in general? Well, I think that uh, if we're like every everywhere else, and I think we are, uh, the level of distrust for politicians and the level of cynicism is really very, very high, and it's gotten higher over the years. States, state politicians tend to do better than um, than the, than national politicians, but you know, you've been around for long enough to know that you almost never hear anything good saying about state legislators. I mean, it's always about this, the side of the mouth thing. 
Here's what I think. I think that what you see in these two cases is that it's a kind of unsophisticated, sadly lowball kind of, of corruption. It, it appears to be out and out bribery. There's a clear quid pro quo. You stick money in my pocket or under the seat. Um, you get chips. You get a hotel room. Here's what I want you to do for me. But Sylvia Luke was suggesting something broader than that, a different kind of corruption, which has to do with uh, her concern about people's cynicism. I think that part of what is this is the broader issue is is about um, a kind of a informal network that exists that uh, of of influential people, people who are insiders in politics, who really don't have to give money in a direct quid pro quo sense to have influence. Influence is about access. Access is about power, and power is often about these kind of subtle things that you have at your disposal. So when you see um, engineering firms and construction firms giving money to political campaigns, and this includes, this includes this guy with the cesspool company, most of the time the money is given in a general sense because it improves your reputation. It increases the likelihood that you'll get some kind of access, not quid pro quo access necessarily, but some kind of access. And, and the interesting thing about the cesspool guy is that a lot of his money, it appears, went in that direction. You're trying to become a player the way some of the big companies are, are players here. But if you're a player, you don't have to give poker chips or any kind of chips or you don't have to give somebody something in that much of a quid pro quo because you're influential in other ways. You're a person who knows a person. Well, Neil Milner, thank you so much. We could talk for hours. Uh, it reminds me of me being back in college in my political science days, uh, taking a class <laughs> a year. So thank you so much. Great. Always great to hear from you and uh, great to get your thoughts. I'm sure we're going to hear from you uh, a lot more through this campaign season. And uh, who knows what will happen uh, next, as you said, it, it, things could evolve even today as we speak. So we thank you yeah, so much. It's not good. It's not good for someone like me always to say who knows. But when you, when it is actually who knows, you might as well be honest. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks so much, Neil. Great to hear from Neil Milner and uh, his thoughts on the race and on the corruption case unfolding at the Capitol. And also to hear from Sylvia Luke, uh, her personal narrative. She's really drawing on that, her experience as an immigrant and as uh, as Neil Milner had outlined there, just her sort of story of really making it by doing a lot of hard work and uh, and going through public school, becoming an attorney and becoming a lawmaker. Uh, it's a it's a powerful story and one that obviously she is relying on. And I haven't heard any of the other candidates that we've had on uh, on this show, and we've had four, she's the fifth now, uh, talk about doing that sort of that next step of pushing legislation through and implementation. That was a first, and that does distinguish her from the others. Yeah, I thought that was a smart move on her end. As Neil Milner also said, uh, it was the first that we heard. And and her drawing a direct relationship with some of the things that people have experienced from, right? Talking about the way that she was able to assist bringing uh, support for the, uh, the unemployment office and getting people there to help uh, those claims go down, as well as the restaurant card program that many people were uh, beneficiaries of during the pandemic. And so she really tried to attach herself to those projects and saying that she worked with the governor to make sure that those were implemented 
uh, almost putting herself already in that role of the lieutenant governor in that position. So interesting to see how the different narratives kind of carve out. If you've missed any of the other conversations that we've had with any of the other candidates running for the seat, we encourage you to head on over to our uh, page on the Honolulu Star Advertiser website. We have a link there that has all of our previous shows, as well as you can find all of the podcasts archived as well and anywhere that you listen to any of those audio files. So uh, looking forward to those conversations because we'll be having all of those candidates back on to talk a little more details about policy moving forward. Yeah, also interesting to note that she says she's going to be looking into, you know, what it takes to refund that money, uh, to not refund it to Milton Troy, obviously, but to put it in another fund. And she says that that fund should be used specifically to deal with investigating corruption. So we'll see if other lawmakers file suit. I think that money is something that no one wants to touch right now. So uh, it is a wise move politically probably to distance herself from any of those funds, regardless of whether uh, she has a relationship with the person now who has been revealed as person A in those documents. On Monday, shifting gears uh, away from the lieutenant governor's race to the governor's race, uh, as we noted here, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green announced yesterday that he is formally in the race. No surprise there. So we're going to be talking to him for the first time as a candidate and uh, getting his thoughts on the COVID response on Red Hill and about a potential contender in that race, of course, Congressman Kai Kahele. Yeah, a lot to talk about with the Lieutenant Governor. Looking forward to that conversation. We hope you have a great and safe weekend and happy Super Bowl Sunday. We'll see you right back here on Monday for another episode of Spotlight Hawaii. Aloha. Aloha. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs and Beachside Roofing.